On January 1st, 1995, the Cleveland Browns and the New England Patriots played each other in an AFC wildcard game. It was a great game. Two good teams playing against each other. Vinny Testaverde against Drew Bledsoe. Two Hall of Fame coaches uh, going head-to-head. Bill Parcells against a young, up-and-coming defensive guru named Bill Belichick, who was then the coach of the Cleveland Browns. And the Browns won squarely. They led almost the entire game. The Patriots only led for four minutes of that entire game. I don't know if you remember that game in 1995, but I sure do because I was raised as a Browns fan. I grew up in Ohio, just north of Columbus. And so for my entire childhood, uh, and still to this day, I have been a fan of the Cleveland Browns. And there are very few sweeter days than January 1st, 1995, when the Browns beat the Patriots 20-13 to to go on to the AFC Championship game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, speaking of the Steelers, I went to seminary in Pittsburgh, which meant for two years I lived in the territory of our greatest rival, whom we played twice a year. Twice a year I had to deal with being ragged on and, and, and uh, made fun of and pushed down by Steelers fans. It was so hard. And the hardest part was that we never beat them except for one time. November 26, 2012, we won. We beat the Steelers routinely every facet of the game. We were better than them. And, and then I came into school on that next day, that Monday, and I was excited. I was confident. Uh, I had confidence. I had swagger. I walked in and I was telling everybody how I was doing. People had their heads down. They didn't want to make eye contact. They didn't want to talk. They were like, yeah, yeah, good game. And I was like that for the next 34 days until the Browns played the Steelers again that season. And then on December 30th of 2012, I walked into seminary with my head down and shame on my face. Because they got beat, and they got beat very, very badly. Football is a game of winning and losing, right? And as a Browns fan, I probably know the losing edge of it a little bit more than most. But politics is also a game of winning and losing. And I realize that some of us here today, we may feel like we won this week. Probably not many of us, because this week's been a little intense, but some of us may politically feel like we won this week. Uh, we feel like our party won, our candidate won, we're feeling good, we have confidence, we're going into this next week happy about what happened in the election. But I know that there's others of us who this week are gonna go into it feeling like I do on the day after a Browns loss. And you are gonna be heartbroken and your head's gonna be down and you don't wanna talk, you don't wanna engage, you just want to keep moving until the next thing happens. I don't know how you voted. And honestly, I truly have no desire to know how you voted. I'm not interested in that information at all. Today isn't about how you voted or who you voted for. That was last week. We did that. Now we're moving on. Today is about how you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to live within a political society. Here is a simple truth about this. Jesus isn't on our side. Jesus wants us to be on his side. Think about that. 
Jesus is not on our side and he's not going to be on our side. He wants us to be on his side. We're finishing our series, Jesus and Politics, talking about the unmentionables. And today I want to end it by talking about how we need to be repositioned politically from our agenda, from our political party's agenda, from our candidate's agenda, to the agenda of Jesus. We're going to talk about what it looks like to truly live as Christians, as followers of Jesus, in a political society. And that doesn't mean withdrawing. That means engaging from the viewpoint of Jesus. But first, I want to pray for us. So will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are here with us in each of our homes, that you have something good for us today. And I pray that you will be here with us, that you will speak to us, that you will show us what you're up to. We love you, Jesus. We are so grateful for you. And we ask for you to come and to speak and to show us more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. To start us off, I want to look at Joshua chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to that. Uh, you can also look at the Bible that's there uh, just underneath the, the chat on the side of your screen. Click on the Bible and look at Joshua chapter 5. We're going to be at verses 13 to 15 the entire time this morning. Uh, so you can kind of park there. Let's see what it says. And then this, while Joshua was there near Jericho, he looked up and he saw in front of him a man standing, holding his drawn sword. And Joshua stepped up to him and said, whose side are you on, ours or our enemies? And he said, neither. And I'm a commander of God's army and I've just arrived. Joshua fell face to the ground and worshiped. And he asked, what orders does my master have for his servant? And God's army commander ordered Joshua, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And catch this last part. Joshua did it. Whose side are you on? Ours or our enemies? Joshua had guts, right? He called out. He stood up to this very imposing figure with a sword who would have looked very authoritarian, uh, very in charge of the situation. And he comes up and he says, whose side are you on? Ours or our enemies? He speaks out. He calls him out. And then he gets laid out. And then he gets knocked to the ground. Because our question should not be, whose side are you on? Because God doesn't take human sides. That's not the game that he plays. He has his own agenda that he is moving forward. The question, though, that I want us to look at is this very wrong question of whose side are you on? Because sides imply winning and losing. But too often, that's the only way that we think about it, especially when it comes to politics. Whose side are you on? Whose candidate are you voting for? What agenda are you about? You don't care about this thing? Well, then you're losing. You know, that's how we view politics. But Jesus isn't about winning and losing. He's about bringing his kingdom into our world. So then rather than asking God to come to our political aid to justify our political agenda, I think we need to reorient ourselves and ask Jesus, what is your agenda? What is your agenda, Jesus, in the midst 
of 2020. What is your agenda, Jesus, as we go into a political election season? What is your agenda, Jesus, after the candidates have already been elected and we just look at how we're supposed to live life now? And the Bible does a great job of telling us what the agenda of Jesus is. He lays it out for us over and over and over and over again. And I want to talk about a couple of agenda items that I think are very high up on God's list. And the first one that I want to start off with, and and I can't talk about all of them, otherwise we'd be here all day. Uh, So this is not comprehensive. Uh, This is a highlight. And so here's the first one that I think on the the, the value list, the agenda uh, of Jesus when it comes to politics. Jesus is extremely pro-life. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is pro-life when it comes to abortion. And he's pro-life when it comes to euthanasia. Jesus is pro-life when it comes to capital punishment. And he's pro-life when it comes to war. He is pro-life in every single way from unborn to elderly and everything that falls in between. He's pro-life when it comes to violence. He's pro-life when it comes to, uh, to ethnicity, to race, to uh, political systems. He's pro-life in every single way. And here's where I get this from. John 10.10, 10, amongst many others, says this. Uh, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and a satisfying life. Life is only known through Jesus, and Jesus is never pro-death. Never, not once. He came to defeat death. Here's the second thing that I think Jesus has on his agenda. Again, not a comprehensive list. But here's another thing that he values, and it's justice. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Jesus fights for justice and he tells us to search for it until we find it. Seek justice. That means keep searching until it becomes a reality, until you see it in front of your face. Don't ever stop. Don't quit. Keep pushing. Keep moving. Keep working for it. Keep fighting for orphans and widows. Keep fighting for those who are easily dismissed by our society because they're easier to uh, to misuse. They're easier to ignore than they are to actually deal with. Uh, they're easier to forget than to actually deal with. Keep fighting for those that society deems unnecessary. Keep fighting for those that society has refused to, to care for, to love on, and to treat as humans, as loved ones of Jesus. Justice for the oppressed for the oppressed is only fully known in Jesus, and Jesus is never pro oppression. What else? Let me start giving you some bullet points here. Comfort those who are grieving. Act with humility. Hunger for justice and righteousness. Show mercy. Care for the poor. Keep your heart pure. Do right even if you're persecuted. And work for peace. It sounds like a big list, right? Where am I getting all of this from? Well, this is from the Beatitudes. And I think the Beatitudes should have a bigger role in our politics as followers of Jesus. This list of the people whom Jesus blesses. In Matthew chapter 5, that's what this is. And those whom Jesus blesses, we should be blessing as well. And I want to give special attention to the last thing that I just mentioned, working for peace. Because friends, if there's ever a place for Christians in our current political system, it is this. We are called to be peacemakers. 
There is room for us as followers of Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are given a little bit extra to be able to give peace in our world, to show peace in our world. There is room for us to speak out for peace. And I think that we need to carry this banner. We need to step into this role more than we ever have. We need it in our current political climate because peacemaking is undervalued and underutilized right now. Esau Macaulay is a theologian and he wrote that the call to be peacemakers is the call for the church to enter the messy world of politics and point a better point toward a better way of being human. Jesus doesn't say make peace between Christians, but make peace. Why? Because the outcome of our peacemaking is to introduce people to the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 9, God blesses those who work for peace. What if we looked at peacemaking, especially in the realm of politics, as part of evangelism? Now, you may not know what evangelism means. Evangelism basically means that we're showing other people who Jesus is, that we're bringing Jesus into our world, that we're spreading the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. What if peacemaking and politics was a part of our evangelism plan of how we were bringing the good news of Jesus into our world? What if it was a way that we were showing people who don't know Jesus the good news of what it looks like to follow Jesus? True peace is only known through Jesus, only. And Jesus is never pro-anxiety or pro-chaos. Whose side are you on? Neither. I'm a commander in the Lord's army and I've just arrived. So take off your sandals, get on your knees, and because the place where you're standing is holy. We've talked about the agenda of Jesus. Now I want to talk about the place that holiness has in our politics. What does holiness mean, though? What, what does that word uh, really mean when it comes to politics? You know, the ground that Joshua was standing on had not changed from one moment to the next. It was still the same dirt. It was still the same grass. Whatever it was that he was standing on was still the same. What had changed from the moment that the angel, the commander of God's army spoke uh, to the moment that it became holy, God's presence entered that space. When God's presence enters the space, everything changes and it becomes holy. Holiness means sacredness, set-apartness. It means for a space to become a sanctuary, a place for the dwelling of the Most High God. When God's presence enters the space, everything changes and it becomes holy. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How does God's presence enter a place? How does the holiness of Jesus enter into uh, some ground that was the same before? It's often through us. For some reason, Jesus chooses to use us. He calls us a holy nation. He calls us bringers of the goodness of God into our world. Holy nation isn't referring to a country like Israel or America. It's referring to the church, to the people of God who are called to bring his holiness, his presence into our world in substantive and substantial ways. 
We have been called out of darkness and into his light. What happens when the presence of God, the holiness of God enters into politics? Evil can no longer stand. And we as followers of Jesus, we need to be ones who speak up against the evil that we see in our world. We have to bring the goodness of God into our political society. We are called to that as followers of Jesus. Speaking up against evil, though, is not about winning an argument. It's not about getting our way. It has to be about showing the holiness, the goodness of God, of Jesus, to our world. But it's necessary to recognize that we are not always going to get popularity points for doing this. It's not always going to go over well. We are going to get opposition. We see it over and over again in the New Testament, especially where bringers of the presence of God received opposition. Paul, it happened to him over and over again. There was one time where Paul is walking the streets with a couple of friends in a, in a busy city, and this girl starts following him, probably a, a young teenager, and she starts shouting stuff at him. And like he, he tries to ignore it, but he can't. And so he keeps going. And, and then he stops and he turns around and, she, and he looks at her and he could tell that something was wrong. And so he immediately says to the demons that were oppressing her to get out, to leave her. And they immediately do. They leave. And it's amazing, right? This huge miracle. Her life changed. She was immediately different. You could see it in her face and her eyes and how she even spoke. Everything about her had changed. Her life was changed for the better in that moment. But do you think that they thanked Paul for doing that? No. In fact, they threw him in prison. They were going to kill him because of this. Why? Because she was a slave and she was owned by somebody who was making money out of her oppression. Paul speaking uh, against the evil that he saw affected the place that he was in, and they did not like it. He was imprisoned, and then he, he was ran out of town. Speaking against evil is not always going to be popular, but speaking up against evil is what we are called to do. Rich Nathan is a vineyard pastor, and he said, Christians need to have conviction that I'm going to do this regardless of the pushback because it's biblical. Because this is the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is going to press ahead. We have to have the conviction that we are called to speak up against the evil and injustices, the oppression that we see in our world. That is part of our calling as followers of Jesus in a political society. The end of this section in Joshua, it says, Joshua fell face to the ground and worshiped. And he asked, what orders does my master have for his servant? God's army commander ordered Joshua, take your sandals off. The place you're standing is holy. And Joshua did it. Joshua started off with his agenda, with his side, with his plan. But being in the presence of God completely repositioned him. It left him on the ground asking what his orders were. He realized that he's not the one in charge, that no human authority is actually the one in charge, but the one in charge is God. As one theologian said, no other message is needed. He can only obey his commander in chief. And where does he realize this? It's on his knees, worshiping, face down, asking. 
for his orders. Friends, you and I, we need to be repositioned. We need to stop and ask for the plan, not assume that we know what the plan is, not assume that we already know what the agenda is, how we're supposed to act. We need to be in a position to receive orders, not to give them. So how do we position ourselves well? You know, my sister-in-law, Sarah's sister, uh, recently did this thing with her students at InterVarsity. InterVarsity is a, a campus ministry for college students that she works for. And so she took them on this discipleship uh, cycle around the election. And here was the cycle. Uh, hear the word, respond actively, debrief and interpret. So what she starts by is leading them in this study of the Lord's Prayer, of that section in Matthew, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And at the end of it, they start praying for our country, uh, for, for the candidates, uh, for just all kinds of different things, and, and, and processing how to pray for that well. And then after that time of prayer, they take a sample ballot and they start researching. And they, they research the issues and the candidates, and then they pray for the issues, and they pray for the candidates, and they pray about the candidates' platforms. And, and they, they, they take time to listen to Jesus in the midst of that. And then they finish by going over what stuck out to them, what surprised them, what they feel like they heard from Jesus, and how did this change their approach to engaging with the world through politics. What if we did things like that before we engaged politically? Before we posted our thoughts on social media, before we voted, before we went and talked about politics with our friends and our family and our coworkers? What if we stopped before we did anything related to politics? We got on our knees, we asked Jesus where he was in it, we researched it, we thought it out, we looked, we, we, we measured it against the Bible and what the Bible has to say, and then we began to act. What if we actually allowed ourselves to be repositioned before we acted? What if? Because here's the truth, friends. Politicians are not going to be focused on bringing the kingdom of God in our world. But that's okay. Because that's our job. That's what we are called to do. We as followers of Jesus are called to bring the kingdom of God into our world. And the kingdom of God does not come through a party. It does not come through a candidate. It does not come through the Supreme Court. We don't place our trust in those things because when we do, we begin to worship something that looks like religion, that smells right like religion, that may even use the same words as religion, but is not the same thing as following Jesus. We don't rely on politicians or political parties for the simple reason that we do not expect them to be Jesus. We can respect, honor, and vote for and agree with them. We can push for them to make changes in our world that will make the world better. But here's the simple truth. Jesus is the answer and we have to believe in that. Do not rely on the president, the Supreme Court, or Congress. Rely on Jesus and join him in bringing his agenda into our world. So how are you positioned? Are you positioned to fight for your side? Or are you positioned to listen for orders from our commander-in-chief? 
Are you in a place of holiness, a sanctuary, a place where you could be reoriented to receive orders, not just to give them? Let me end with a story. When I was 20, it was 2005, uh, which meant that the Iraq war was going on. Um, there's all kinds of political stuff wrapped into that just after a political election. And I worked at a small business bank and we were having a conversation with some coworkers about politics. And the bank president looked at me and asked me what my thoughts were. You know, I'm 20, so why is he asking? Well, there's a simple reason. He, he knew that I was a Christian. He knew that I went to church. And, and so they wanted my opinion uh, on these issues as somebody who goes to church. Uh, so it was a little bit of a test, to be honest. And so in all of my 20 years worth of political experience uh, and life experience, I thankfully paused and I thought about it. And then I said, well, you know, similar to what I said earlier, I said, you know, I, I think that Jesus is extremely pro-life. And here's what I mean. He's pro-life when it comes to abortion and euthanasia. He's pro-life when it comes to capital punishment. And he's pro-life when it comes to war. And then we went on from there. And the, the bank president stopped me at one point and he said, that is shockingly pro-life. He's like, that might be the most pro-life stance that I think I've ever heard. And it surprised him. And honestly, it surprised me. Because it was the first time in my life that I fully realized that the agenda of Jesus would never fit neatly anywhere when it came to politics. It was too broad and it was too narrow and it was just too different. And friends, I know what I'm asking. I know that I'm asking you to always stick out. I know that I'm asking you to never neatly fit within a box that we already have made. But I'm not the one asking it. Jesus is. Jesus wants to reposition us. And I think in 2020, we desperately need to be repositioned politically. Whose side are you on? Neither. Jesus isn't on our side, but he wants us to be on his side. So let's get on our knees, put our face to the ground, take off our shoes because we're in the presence of Jesus. Joshua allowed himself to be repositioned. Will we?